Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Jew Podcast, where we dive deep into Torah and Judaism to uncover its hidden beauty. Come join us as we take a closer look and breathe new life into traditional Jewish ideas. And now, here's your host, Rabbi Moshe Siegel. Hello, happy Purim, and welcome to episode 65. I want to just mention before I begin that if you want to review the basic laws of Purim to make sure you're prepared to fully take advantage of all the spiritual potential of the day, I would suggest you go back and listen to episode 15. It goes through all the laws of the day of Purim as well as it shares another beautiful theme of Purim as well. On today's episode, I want to discuss what the deep essence of Amalek is. Not just the people of Amalek as they express themselves in the Torah, but what they represent. So who is Amalek? What do they represent? The Torah demands, very interestingly, that the Jews wipe out even the remembrance of Amalek, which the Talmud translates to mean that even their animals have to be destroyed. So nobody should say, this was an Amalekite horse. God wants no memory of Amalek to exist at all. So what is it about them that's so bad? Why do they have such a fierce opposition to God and the Jews? And now this is relevant to the holiday of Purim as well, because as we know, Haman is actually referred to in the Megillah as Haman HaAgagi, or Haman the Agagite, referring to the fact that he was a descendant of King Agag, the king of Amalek. And our sages understand that Haman's venomous approach and desire to not just punish Mordechai, but as the Megillah describes, to destroy the entire nation that Mordechai was associated with, that was an extension of him being an Amalekite and living with the Amalekite mindset. So who is Amalek? What do they do? What do they represent? The first time the nation of Amalek appears in the Torah is in Exodus chapter 17, verse 8. The Torah writes, And Amalek came and battled with Israel in Rephidim. Now let's put this into context. The Jews had just left Egypt, which was previously the superpower of the world. And they didn't just leave Egypt, but they decimated it. God brought ten plagues destroying the land of Egypt and then followed that up with a splitting of the sea, drowning the remaining Egyptian army. And the world at large knew about this. The Torah writes in Exodus chapter 15, verse 15, Then the leaders of Edom were afraid, the powerful ones of Moab quaked in fear, and the residents of Canaan melted in fear. So clearly word had gotten out. Everyone recognized the powerful God of the Jewish nation and what he did to Egypt. And yet here comes Amalek and brazenly attacks the Jews shortly after they enter the desert. Why would they do that? They knew they had no chance of winning. And sure enough, that's what happens. They get destroyed. So what was this battle about? Why does Amalek come and take this like kamikaze approach, knowing they're going to lose, yet still attack the Jewish nation? One of my rabbis, a great rabbi in Jerusalem named Rabbi Margolius, explained to me once that there are three nations across Tanakh, across Torah, prophets, and writings that are described as racist, which means first or primary. They have a certain elementary chief role amongst the nations. In Numbers chapter 24, verse 20, it says, Racist Goyim Amalek. A primary leading nation is Amalek. But his fate is to perish forever. Jeremiah 2.3, the prophet describes the Jewish nation as, Kodesh Yisrael Hashem, 
Holy is the Jewish nation to Hashem, the first or primary of his harvest. Lastly, in Psalms 78, verse 51, King David writes, And God struck every firstborn in Egypt. The first or primary of their strength in the tents of the descendants of Ham. So we find three nations with this unique description of racious, which is expressive of a certain primary role amongst the nations. What's the significance of this? From a spiritual perspective, there are three leading nations in the world. On the side of holiness, there are the Jews. And opposing them, there are two primary forces. One that's represented by the essence of Egypt, and one represented by the essence of Amalek. What does this mean? When Moses approaches Pharaoh and asks him to let the Jewish people go serve God in the desert, what does Pharaoh say? He says, Exodus 5, 2, Who is this Hashem you speak of that I should listen to him? He denies God entirely. We know that Pharaoh actually considered himself a God. So Pharaoh's opposition to Moses was in the fact that God existed at all. So how was that error of Pharaoh corrected? God showed him that I do exist. God transformed the Nile into blood, brought out plagues of frogs and lice, wild animals, etc. It became extremely clear that there is a God, and he controls both the land and the sea, the animals, fire, water, and everything in the world. Since Pharaoh opposed the concept of God's existence, the triumph over Pharaoh brought about an unparalleled clarity in God's existence. To the extent that the Torah writes that as the Jews crossed the sea, even the lowest servants and maidservants were able to point with their fingers and say clearly, there is God. An unprecedented and never repeated clarity and acknowledgement of the existence of God. But what about Amalek? In what way is Amalek racist? In what way are they the chief and captain of a certain ideology that opposes the Jewish nation. They must have known that God existed because like we just mentioned, all of the nations recognize that throughout the Exodus process. So what ideology was Amalek championing? Our sages teach us that Amalek does not oppose the existence of God. Rather, Amalek opposes the will of God expressing itself in the world. When does Amalek attack? Right before the Jews receive the Torah. Amalek attempts to prevent us from accepting the Torah and dedicating our lives to bringing godliness into the world. Amalek doesn't oppose God like Pharaoh did. Rather, Amalek opposes the Jewish nation directly. The Jewish nation whose role is to express God's will in this world, to be a light unto the nations, and to teach the world how to bring God into your life. That's what Amalek was opposed to. So Haman never questions God or denies him. He tries to wipe out the Jewish nation. He tries to obliterate the nation that expresses God's will to the world. The Talmud asks a very strange question. Talmud is in Chulin 139b, and it asks, where do we find a reference to Haman in the Torah? Now obviously, Haman existed around a thousand years after the Torah was written, so he's not going to be mentioned in the Torah. But what the Talmud is asking is where do we find the source, the root form of Haman's essence mentioned in the Torah? Where is his ideology that he preaches sourced in? The Talmud answers a verse in Genesis chapter 3, verse 11. After Adam sinned by eating from the tree of knowledge, God asks him, 
Hamin ha'etz asher tzivisicha, levilti echod mimenu achalta? Did you maybe eat from that tree I warned you not to eat from? The very first word I quoted was hamin, which, as the Torah is written without vowels, can also be read as haman or haman. The Talmud is saying that haman's essence is found in the Torah, where Adam is totally aware of God. He feels God's presence in the garden, yet he decides to go against God's will. This is what Haman is, the power that says God might exist, but I'm not going to bring his will out into this world. The deeper sources say that the essence of Haman was actually the serpent itself, the serpent that convinced Eve and Adam to stray from bringing God's will into the world was itself the original manifestation of Amalek. I'll add one last piece, and then we'll stop and recap. When God questions Eve about eating from the tree of knowledge, Eve responds as follows, The serpent tricked me, and I ate from it. And this word she uses, hishiyani, is a bothersome word. And Rashi is bothered by where exactly this word comes from. It's very strange. In the end, Rashi explains it to mean that the snake tricked Eve. But the deeper sources explain that it's really a compound of two words, hayesh and ayin. There is or there is not. These are the exact same two words that the Jewish nation said in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, just prior to Amalek attacking them in the desert. The verse says the Jews questioned, asking, is God with us or is he not? Hayesh, is he here? Or Ayan, is he not here? The very next words of the Torah are, and then Amalek came and attacked them. Rashi connects these two verses and says that since the Jews were questioning God's presence in this world, that's why Amalek comes and attacks. That same word, that root, that power of, is God really here? Is God not here? Should I do the will of God? Should I not do the will of God? That power of doubt is the power of Amalek. And the sources teach us as well that the numerical value of Amalek is actually the exact same numerical value as the word suffake, which means doubt as well. That same power that influenced Adam and Eve to not express God's will in the world once again resurfaces to attempt to prevent the Jewish nation from getting the Torah and bringing God's will into the world once again. So to summarize what we said, Egypt represents the denial of the existence of God. And as a result, the response to that was God openly revealing himself to the whole world and saying, here I am, I clearly exist. Amalek represents acknowledging God's existence, but not wanting it expressed in our world. So they oppose the Jewish nation whose goal is to bring out godliness to the world. The way we defeat that is through the power of the Jewish nation, not through the expression of God. And that's why the name of God isn't even mentioned in the story of Esther. The whole story happens within the Jewish nation. Haman never opposed God's reality, so it wasn't God's open reality that defeated him. Haman opposed the Jewish nation as expressing God's will in the world, so it was the Jewish nation expressing God's will in the world that defeated Haman. Mordechai and Esther, who were clearly just conduits from bringing the divine will into the world, are the ones that step up and defeat the wicked Haman. I give us all a blessing that we should merit this Purim and throughout our lives to bring God into our lives even more and spread that light that we know that we all have inside of us of godliness, spread it across our whole bodies, spread it to our families, to our communities, and to the world around us, 
Wishing everybody a very, very happy and joyous Purim. Thank you for listening to the Thinking Jew podcast and for taking the time to study Torah and deepen your connection to Judaism. If you found value in today's episode, please leave us a rating or review and subscribe to the podcast. If you have any questions, comments, or topic requests for Rabbi Moshe, please email the Thinking Jew podcast at gmail.com or visit thethinkingjew.com.